0: Good morning, and welcome to Georgia Heart Grand Rounds. Thank you all for joining us. I'm pleased to share that today's presentation has been awarded credit for physicians, nurses, radiology techs, and EMS. This program is brought to you by Georgia Heart Institute with the generosity of grants from our industry partners. The planners have disclosed no relevant financial relationships with commercial interests. Dr. Schuler will disclose his relationships in his presentation. To claim credit today, take our online survey. The link to that will be shared at the end of the program and in the Zoom chat. If you have a question for Dr. Schuler, please hold until the end of the presentation. And now, to introduce our guest speaker, is Dr. An.
1: Oh, okay. Hi. Good morning. Um, It gives me a great pleasure to uh, welcome back uh, Brian Schuler for giving. today's Grand Rounds. Um, Just to give you a little bit of uh, background, Um, Brian and I were co-fellows at Emory, so I've known him for a long time, and uh, always kind of admired kind of his uh, innovative thoughts and great ideas. He always comes up with amazing ideas that he shares with us. So um, he's currently the section chief uh, of clinical uh, cardiac electrophysiology at WallSpan Health, uh, which is an integrated healthcare delivery system in south-central uh, Pennsylvania. And uh, he's a member of the Heart Rhythm Society, um, fellow of the American College of Cardiology, and board certified in both uh, clinical cardiac EP and, and cardiovascular CT. Um, so he graduated at Emory, um, both cardiovascular disease and uh, did his fellowship at Emory as well, finished in 2006. Um, he's uh, developed a sterling reputation as, a, uh, as, an, a- as an EP and he has been really a, a key opinion leader in the uh, areas of transeptal puncture, lead extraction, AFib ablation, and left atrial appendage occlusion therapy, So, um, as well as cardiac CT. Um, he's been a uh, principal investigator in multiple trials, uh, the OPTION trial, the AMULET trials, um, Pinnacle Flex Catalyst Champion, all of these left atrial appendage occlusion tri- uh, trials that are just basically groundbreaking trials. Uh, also, in the, in the ablation field as well, um, he's uh, started multiple programs um, uh, for left atrial appendage occlusion, lead extraction, and AFib ablation at his, at his, um, at his site. Um, so, um, again, um, welcome, Brian. Uh, he's going to give us a talk on CT-Angio Suite, Unlocking the Power of Advanced Imaging in the EP Cath Lab.
2: Thank you. Um, Appreciate Dr. Samity and uh, Dr. An for in- inviting me back, and um, I always feel welcome here. I'm, uh, it's like a second home for me. So uh, most of the time when I give these talks, I got like ten minutes. Or I gave one. I had flew, on, flew on out to California, and I had eight minutes. I was telling June about it last night. So I flew all the way out to California, and I had an eight minute talk. So today I, I actually get to elaborate a little bit more. So. Um, I think the first time I did a talk for Habib, he said 18 slides max, and I had 81, and I did it in, I think it was 15 minutes, so it won't be so pressured today. Um, So I'm a consultant for Canon and for uh, Boston Scientific. Um, So today we're going to demonstrate the, or I hope to demonstrate the utility of the CT Engine suite for uh, EP and cath procedures, demonstrating The power uh, uh, of CT-guided appendage occlusion, uh, closure of percutaneous leaks, or peri-device leaks, sorry, Um, CT-fluorofusion, same uh, setting uh, CT-guided cardioversion, and same setting uh, coronary CTA-PCI. So a little bit of the EP lab, some of the cath lab, and some of this is uh, groundbreaking work from my partner, uh, uh, Stuart Benton. We're also going to review data demonstrating the incidence and clinical impact of peri-device leak. We're going to review data strongly suggesting that CT guided dependent occlusion should be the gold standard for pair device leak prevention, and that's with our own data. And then review data demonstrating uh, the CT Angio Suite wins both in a feed for service world and a value based care world. So, this is the CT Angio Suite. Um, really, um, it's it's uh, the combination of a single uh, fluoro table with 12 um, inch ceiling mounted C arm coupled with a 16-centimeter volume scanner. So you could imagine the type of procedures that you could do. But so in one respect, if you, if you took a patient and you brought them in and they had chest pain, you could do a CT on them and turn around and intervene right there. We'll show a case of that. Um, you can take a patient that's far away that you don't know their anatomy, bring them in and do a CT of the appendage with, um, with delayed imaging and get their anatomy. And while you're working up the anatomy on the multiplanar reconstruction, they're being prepped and you just go ahead and execute the game plan. So it's a, it's a very unique environment and um, it, it, it opens up a lot of possibilities when you start uh, utilizing these two modalities. Um, when, when we started this, uh, it was really, Bill Nicholson was, was you know, convinced the administration that we needed this technology. Um, Bill's pretty persuasive. I don't know if some of you guys know Bill. He's an Emory grad. We we graduated together. Um, so for for other applications, the CT angio is, is actually a thing in interventional radiology and oncology and that kind of thing, um, so neurointerventional. But in cardiovascular world, this is the first one ever that was used for this application. So we kind of got the system put in place. And at that time, I was using more and more CT to kind of look at the, you know, the appendage for left atrial appendage occlusion, and then um, right around that time, Bill took off, and we got the system in, installed in December of 2019. Bill took off; he went back to Emory and uh, doing great things there. And then, um, so so here we have the system, and we we had a guy named Madi Chatter who's fantastic. All three people here are Emory grads. Um, so Marty ended up going on to the Brigham and got, um, he's an advanced imager from that program, which is, a, which is a fantastic program. And so the three of us started working together and then the pandemic hit and I was like, well, I, I don't really understand this CT so much. I mean, you know, I don't even know how to push. I don't know what I'm looking at. I don't understand what this stuff means. So uh, Stuart and I went out and got level two uh, boarded, in cardiac CT through Johns Hopkins. And there's a number of these programs that you can do. And then from there, it, we started building it out. Um, I think it works really well with a level three advanced imager. And then you really want to try to get your um, your proceduralist CT board. It doesn't take long. It's like a one week thing. And then you can kind of get the, the foundation set. Um, so in this uh, CT angio suite, this, I think of it as an integrated diagnostic and therapeutic arena where you can now do the same setting of a lot of procedures that would be separated in time and space so same setting coronary uh, cta pci is a good example we do taver evaluations left right heart cath and and the amish population they they basically pay cash so we've got a large plain community and um, they'll come in and they want it all done all at once so they did they did the left right heart cath the coronary evaluation on with ct and the runoff and all that and then the taver all in the same setting Um, CT guided cardioversion, um, same setting, CT of the left atrial appendage with left atrial appendage occlusion. And there's a couple of things that we haven't done. Like, for example, PE is an obvious place where this could be amazing, right? You could just make a whole career on it. And we're, 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 it's just, you know, there's the sort of the possibilities are are endless. and there's also the novel guided C, novel CT guided procedures, and I'm going to show you uh, CT guided left atrial appendage occlusion. There's other things we've done like CT guided PFO ASD uh, occlusion, and uh, like uh, other kind of interesting ones like uh, pseudoaneurysm repair. So, first topic that I'm going to really delve into is the um, the the issue of left atrial appendage occlusion and peri device leaks. So. The left atrial appendage obviously is the place where thrombus forms like 99% of the time. When the heart's quivering in a fib, there's sluggish flow and you get a bunch of nooks and crannies out in the, the apex of the left atrial appendage and you're going to f- form thrombus there. The, slow, the sluggish flow results in you know coagulation of blood. So the idea is if you have a patient that's a fall risk or a bleeder that you, you, you seal this thing, you put a device in there that seals it and you eliminate it from the equation and so I, I got to give props to some of the companies, because when they first started doing this, they, they set the bar really, really low. They said, well, you know, if it's less than a five millimeter leak, then that's a successful left atrial appendage occlusion. I guess if you set the bar that low, you're going to win. And that's really what happened. Um, and so there, there was like this idea that it didn't really matter as long as the leaks weren't big. It, it didn't really matter. And that changed with uh, Chris Ellis, um, took his uh, patient population at four centers, um, and, and Chris was a, a guest speaker, uh, and he was on the days with me um, a couple of years ago. Anyway, right around that time that we had the first, um, the first symposium here, um, I was touting his work, and so they, they found an 8.3% risk of incidence of stroke in patients that had peri-device leak versus 2.7, so a three-fold increase, roughly. And they also found, interestingly, that if you had a leak less than 3 millimeters, the risk of the incidence of stroke was nearly 10%. So you ask yourself, okay, well, these patients that have small leaks, that that why is it that a small leak is more damaging than a bigger leak? Well, it turns out that the, in their patient population, the 50, uh, 51% of those with leaks over 3 millimeters were put on oral anticoagulation versus 16%. So there's a confounder there, and that, that is the confounder. So... So in, in essence, all these uh, really do matter. And so the, the, um, the Protect AF and Prevail, which is the, the two studies for the original Watchman 2.5 device, and there's, like, I think, a 1,000 patients overall in that cohort, that, that working group went back and looked at their data, and they had previously found that at 45 days, it didn't predict anything. But when they looked at paired device leak at one year, the risk of stroke doubles, when you have a leak at one year, so it goes from 5.1 to 9.5 percent. And if you look at that that chart, sort of in the middle, you'll see there's a 28 percent incidence of of leak overall, and only 0.7 of them were greater than five millimeters. That 0.5 millimeters is determined by TEE; it's the it's the jet width. So it does has nothing to do with the actual geometry. And if if you study these things on CT, they're usually these sort of crescent shaped things. And they're really just cutting a cross-section somehow with, with the TEE to, to determine that sort of five millimeters. Um, Muhammad Al-Khuli, I think, is is brilliant, and he just put an article out in Jack Interventions that anybody that's doing appendage occlusion needs to read, and it has to do with um, device-related thrombus and it's a state-of-the-art, it's a wonderful review uh, that he put together. It's in this uh, month's edition. But anyway, he took 51,000 patients and found that those... Patients. This is a one-year follow-up. That the the um, there, there's a leak stroke association at one at one year in le- in leaks that are less than five millimeters. So this confirms it. It does take some time for this to blossom, and you you ask yourself why. Well, most of these patients were um, Watchman two five, and that regimen was actually um, oral anticoagulation for forty-five days, DAPT for six months, and then. They go to single antiplatelet therapy. So to me, it's kind of like how long are they exposed to single antiplatelet therapy? And then you start to see the, the curve sort of uh sort of uh you know divide out or um spread apart. And um you'll see that in the AMLA IDE and the NCDR and in the Watchman trials that there's a difference always if you have a PDL. Some of them are significant, some of them are not, but um but the, the NCDR, it's definitely significant at one year, which is, which is not a huge difference. But but give it five years at the in the Watchman trials, and you can see uh, the doubling. And so then you ask yourself, well, what's the incidence of this? And I, I showed you twenty eight percent, but it's it's a lot. This is a large problem. Par device leaks are, are kind of a major issue. The Pinnacle Flex, which is the four hundred patients to get the. Uh, uh, The Watchman Flex approved, they had a 17% by TEE at 45 days. And so I'm going to show you some data a little bit later here that indicates that CT is much more sensitive than than TEE. Um, So most of these pair device leaks that you see on here, this is all by TEE criteria. Um, So if you wanted to compare uh, pair device leaks to device-related thrombus, so I'm sitting in some of these advisory meetings for one of the companies, and, you know, everyone was harping on device-related thrombus. And if you know that the new sort of Watchman device that's coming out has this coating that attracts albumin to try to shield the surface of the device from platelets, that's the strategy that they developed. But, you know, um, there were other people in the room and they were saying, you know, the pair device leak problem is a, it, it's, you know, it's for, it's, it, it's many more times the issue in terms of s- scope, right, as compared to DRT. DRT and the meta-analysis that Cooley did in 2018 um, with over 10,000 patients is 3.8% pooled. If you look at Protect AF and Prevail, it's 3.7%, 3.9% in the amulet trial. And if you break that down, the amulet device, their DRTs are a little bit earlier um, because I think because they're using DAPT, I think. But it's also could be the characteristics of the appendages and whatnot. But, but the bottom line here is the outlier is the pinnacle flex. And our data of over 330, we're at 3.6% at one year. So I think it's somewhere in that 3 to 4% range. And that's what I tell our patients for risk of device-related thrombus. So this is the first in human uh, interprocedural CT. This is December 2019. We had like literally no idea what we were doing. Um, but we, we connected a side port of a long sheath, and we connected to the dual source injector and delivered, you know, f- at the time it was 50 cc's of contrast followed by um, a saline flush. And we did full cardiac cycle um, and 16 centimeters of coverage. And what it, when you see this, it's I think it's pretty amazing because you can see here like where the transeptal is in the angle. You can see that the appendage is a little bit darker. Um that the appendage is a little bit darker than than the remainder of the uh, the remainder of the body of the left atrium, meaning that um, contrast is struggling to get in here through this fabric. You can make arguments about this. I look at this implant today, and I'm like, first thing is the Watchman Flex was such a dangerous device. I can't believe we did that procedure with those little prongs sticking out. And you know, I think it's too deep, and there's a lot of things that we would be all obsessing about today with a safer device that you can redeploy. Um, so one of the things I'm going to kind of go through, and I've show, shown this case before, but um, how does CT actually help you? Well, the first one and the most obvious one is the axial alignment issue. So a lot of times with TEE, you can't get, in my opinion, you you, you lose the ability to get sort of a frame of reference sometimes. Um, but, you know you can say a 45 degree view is a 45 degree view. And we, we know sort of what that sort of looks like, but in CT, you can put it, you, you can basically validate things with, with 2020 vision in a 3D multiplanar reconstruction sort of form. So there are a lot of times in, in TE, there, there are acoustic windows that, that don't allow you to get the views that you need. And you really need 360 degree view around that the device to know every little segment of the device. And if you do, a, for example, a 135 degree TE view, you might have to clock and counter just to find what we find here on the CT. So a lot of times we'll do it. It looks good. We do the uh, CT. We come back. We're like, where was that? And then, you know, manipulation, manipulate. Oh, there it is. And it's this little tiny sliver of a cut. So so anyway. This one's pretty obvious because um, if the device is not aligned properly along the long axis of the appendage, you're going to get a leak here. And you can see that this right here is, is where the PET fabric will end. It's probably not the fabric itself. You can clearly see the fabric on TEE. There's argument about what, what this represents. I think it probably is the, um, the anchors. But the, the, the fabric ends at the anchor. So I'm using it as a surrogate, but this is definitely a leak. And so we, we had to reposition this device and get this this to um orient well. And then that at 45 days it looked great. Um I'm gonna show you these two cases more in depth, but one of them is a depth adjustment. You have a posterior, um, you have a posterior gutter that's getting up too close to where the PT fabric is in one case. You've got kind of a same kind of situation here, and we've dealt with these in different ways, and I'll show you that. So this is a, a depth adjustment case. 75 year old with persistent AFib and sinus rhythm uh, on amiodarone. OF five has blood of four with GI bleeding. Um, so this is a classic, um, you know, a patient for for uh, left atrial appendage occlusion. So we do pre-procedural CT with delayed imaging. And here, push the wrong button. Here, the um, you can see there's some proximal pectinate muscles on the ridge side, which that's kind of going to be a little bit could be a little bit of an issue you're getting a uh, 309, we do areas. So the average is 20 millimeters. And so because there's only 16 millimeters of depth, this looks like a 24 millimeter uh, Watchman device. And so here's the um, the uh, uh, TE images at zero, um, I'm not sure if I have to push this or not. Yes, I do, okay. Sorry, uh, T- zero, 45 roughly, and uh, 135, and I, I can't put, for normally we do all we do ninety degrees too. I just I just can't do. It. But for the sake of argument, you this is a stable device. There's no peri device leak, and you'd say, well, based on all this, would you release the device? And um, so, of course, we 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 still going to do our CT, and then on the CT you see this going on. You see that the device is constrained, and what happens distally to this device will affect what the way the device behaves proximally. Um, they're actually working on a way to make the distal end of the device and the proximal end of the device more or less independent, whereby you, you, the distal end won't have influence over the proximal. But as soon as we started putting this device in, we realized that th- that the device gets because of its it's a uh, laser cut hypotube, and so when you when you compress the distal end, it'll elongate the sort of the proximal end. And if you think about the way it's built with the PET fabric on it, the fabric ends somewhere about here. So what ends up happening is if this distal end of the device, which does the job of anchoring, if it elongates, you basically are getting like a dead space out here. And that's the way I think about it. There's a dead dead space distally on this device. And here, there's not going to be a lot of PET fabric coverage. I'll zoom in on it for you to see. There's about two millimeters of coverage here. And... Is it going to leak? You're not 100% sure if it's going to leak or it's not going to leak, but there's not a lot of coverage, and we've seen a lot of this type of issue, and then they go, those patients go on to have a leak. And the reason is they've got a gutter, and if this thing remodels in the wrong way and it opens up more, you're definitely going to have a leak. So we just repositioned this device a little bit deeper. It doesn't look like it's that much different, but I'll give you a sort of a, a zoomed-in view here. And, um, and if you look at it, we just doubled the PET fabric. Um, We did this case with 88 total cc's of contrast. That's 240 cc um, uh, CTs plus 8 cc's to inject the the appendage. Um, And we do the CTs based on the pre-planning. So we already know the views. We walk in and we just execute the game plan and nothing really changes. I'm not panning around or anything. Um, And so here it is at one year with 11% compression. You can see how dark it is. The Hounsfield units are going to be well below 100 here. And that's This is a perfect seal. A um, couple little things here. Uh, if you look uh, the Mohammed Al Kuli uh, paper, but there's this little bit of darkness on either side of the of the the threaded insert or the screw, and that's call, they call that hypo attenuation thickening um, or hat. And there's different grades of that, but it turns out that um, the fabric right here can be like lifted off. Um, it's not really like adhesed like adhered too tightly and so you'll get thrombus underneath that fabric and it and it basically looks like like a dark thing there and if you do a T it's going to be fine that's called grade zero hat and it is a non non-issue at all and I'm not going to go into all that but that paper is really really a great paper to kind of review all of that And so we did this um full we started doing this because so I'll tell you like a quick side story is that, We started doing full cardiac cycle on our um, follow-ups because we would have patients and we would try to minimize radiation. So we would do like 80% of the cardiac cycle, which is diastasis. And we would do maybe a little bit of padding on that, you know, like 75 to 85%. And we would have these cases where the appendage is perfectly sealed on that phase but it's completely like white inside. So that means that there's contrast getting in there. And I had one and I'm like, there's no way in heck that this, there's gotta be a problem. So I sent the patient for a TE and there was a dynamic uh, gap, a leak that was forming as the atrium was contracting. And so from that point, we're like, you know, we could do this for four, um, oops, we could do this whole study for uh, four millisieverts. And it gives you like, it's, TE equivalence. I mean, you're getting full cardiac cycle, you could see everything. So we just switched to doing that. And that's what we've been doing for the last, oh, probably year or so. And, um, it, you know, you could see dynamic leaks, you could see the whole thing. Um, so th- this is those are current sort of protocol. Second case here is one, and I was talking to June about this, and I'm like, hey, Robert, do this to the device, and he's like, maybe looking at me like I'm c- kind of crazy. But um, remember when I was saying that the device, the distal end of the device will affect the proximal end? Sometimes when you put it in there, it constrains it too much, and you'll have things going on in the proximal part of the appendage, and you need that device to contour to it or sometimes just completely change its shape. That's what this is. So this is a 78-year-old uh, male with a chasvask of six and a six and a half of five with an uh, intracranial hemorrhage. And th- this is a pre-procedural sort of study, and of course, I tell you that we measure uh, area, and of course, I didn't do it. This is not not a um, one of our normal uh, CTs. Sometimes I just whatever's in there, I'll grab it if it's good enough. I just use it. Um, and here are the T. Here, if you look at the bottom left, you can see the deployment, and you can actually see what I'm sort of talking about when I say like kind of dynamic leak. You see how this thing's contracting and it's kind of moving away a little bit. Um, and then here's the 135 view, and then there's the zero degree view, and so you know this actually looked okay. Um, we go ahead and we do the CT, and you can see the device. The 27 millimeter device is pretty elongated. It has the same issue on the back side of the device. I mean, and the, and there's a lot of dead there's a lot of dead space here, and it's all the way up against the wall. There's nowhere to go deeper, so. We were talking to each other, Stuart and I, during this case, and we were saying, like, well, what are we going to do with this? If you go bigger, you're going to make more dead space. It's going to elongate. If you want, like, went to a 31, it's going to make it even longer. So we just decided to, like, smash it in there and see if we could, like, push, like, kind of force our will on the on this thing, if if you will. And, I, you know, so Stuart was doing this, and he, I don't know if you've ever seen him, but he's, he's way, way bigger than me. And so um, he, you know when you see this, so this, that's what that looks like. So he, you can see he's really, so this thing, which was kind of, you know, contracting and moving away from this device, he's got this device really just contouring directly in there. And he really changed the shape of it. And you could see that geomet- geometric change um, with, with this sort of head to head comparison here. Here's the original implant without us touching the back of the device. And then here's him um, muscling the, the device. And so, um, So this is what that looked like. We didn't do a CT, a second CT on this case. I don't think it's creatinine would let us do that. But if you look at this, you'll say, okay, well, here's your your pulmonary vein, left superior. Here's the ridge coming around. Now, this ridge is wrapping the device. And you could see that was going to happen on the TEE. And here's the ridge again wrapping. That's not device-related thrombus. But you've got a lot more contact. The, The shape is completely different. And there's a lot more contact of the pet fabric with the appendage and so here's a direct comparison of you know the dead space that i say is whatever i can't read because i'm getting old 4.6 versus three millimeters so 4.6 we changed the shape and we doubled the the fabric con, uh, contact from 2.4 to 4.3 and then if you look at that at one uh, at one year it looks like like this it looks great so um, so we flare these devices like all the time now. Um, the, the the rules of thumb are if the appendage is really deep, you need to fill the volume up. So go to a bigger device, you can't flare something. If, if you've got space behind the device, it'll it'll migrate, the device will migrate. And uh, so as long as you're hitting against the back wall and square, you can push on the back end and get it to sort of flower out and hit the wall and change the shape. So, so anyway, that's a flare case. Um, and this is an important concept to get down. This is Jackie Saul's data. She found uh, she basically did 100 patients where they looked at um, CT versus TEE to evaluate for pair device leaks, different breakdown of the device types, and um, they were close in time, uh, 105 days versus 125. There was a 34% r- uh, rate of devi- uh, of uh, pair device leak found by TEE, and when you do the math on this, there's a 44% uh, chance of, or 44%. Uh, incidence of pair device leak in those same population of patients evaluated by CT. Um, Some of them were found to have, um, you know, uh, contrast going through, through the device, but there was no physical gap around it. And again, what I was telling you earlier is if you do full cardiac cycle, some of the patients that you think are, you know, well opposed against the wall are not well opposed against the wall through the whole cardiac cycle. So I think it's kind of important if you can do that. Um, but, yeah, these are this is uh, Jackie Saul's paper. So you can add 10%. To when it, people report their TE results, add 10 um, And here's our data here. We our, our, We have a uh, single-digit leak rate. Here's our device-related thrombus rate on the first 330. And I, I'll tell you that the, the rate should be lower than that, but we made mistakes. You know, like we undersized devices. We didn't understand the device. And a lot of things that we – a lot of these we, we, we think – we wouldn't have them today if we could do it over again, but you learn. Um, so in summary, intra-procedural CT-guided left atrial appendage occlusion is the definitive means of validating the device prior to device release, so you can redeploy, change device, do whatever you got to do. It's efficient, it's taking six minutes, It's three to five millisieverts, minimal contrast, you can fully characterize the device LAA alignment and tissue fabric apposition. You can predict and prevent leaks and has the potential to reduce the risk of stroke. I'm going to talk a little bit about pair device leaks and how to manage them. So we unfortunately have had to deal with this. And um, the way that we close them really depends on the mechanism of the leak and if we can get into the device or not. Um, if the mechanism is multiple, like let's say you've got like a way that's getting in two different places, you, you, should, you should coil those cases for sure. Um, so we, we, we coil them and you use uh, we use, I guess I'm going to use the brand name, but it's Trumo CX Coils. Um, and then you just pack the heck out of them. And then you can use, we use the ductal occluder if the mechanism is focal um, or if you can't enter the device. So here's a case of, um, pretty interesting case. So this is a case where the proximal pectinate muscle defeated a Watchman flex. This is very common. Proximal pectinate muscles beat Watchman devices like all the time. And even today, if I'm going to deploy a device and I get this, I'll be like, I don't know if we're going to win here or we're not going to win um and so you could see there's a gutter and it comes up and then it comes into the device um you, you can kind of measure this whole thing and so the plan here was to go inside of it i was going to coil it and then i was going to finish that with uh, a ductal occluder device that was the plan the problem was i couldn't get into the device. Um, and I could show you um, the, the dynamic CT that we see here, and you could see exactly where this thing's coming in. One thing about it is there was only one way for this to come in. So you could potentially seal this gutter itself. And uh, Rodney Horton is the guy that kind of taught me how to do this stuff. Um, and he, um, he, he's told me that he's done that before, you know, se- seal these things. But you could see, if you look at this, I took an angio and you could see it kind of jetting into the uh, appendage what i was trying to do was show um that the that there's this little area here you could remember where it, it was like a gutter and then it was kind of spraying down into the device well i mean i was getting like i couldn't get it to to cross and so then we deployed the device um this this ADO2 de- device and my my T partner who's Ron Jacob now he's telling me Brian i don't like this you know and i'm like well i like it i mean you could see it's like completely uh, uh, sealed from, from an angiographic perspective. He's like, it's hanging out and it doesn't look good. And I'm like, I don't know. I don't know. I don't know what you're talking about. So anyway, after we, we debated this, we went ahead and scanned it. And, um, what you could see here is first of all, the appendage is definitely occluded. I mean, it's dark, you can see this device that's in here, but it does look a little wonky, like the distal end of it is, is in the tract, and then the waist and the proximal end are kind of like floating out in space. And I'll show that on, uh, on, on the um, full cardiac cycle, and you could really see what I'm, what I'm talking about. So he, he was right. Um, so basically what we did was we redeployed this. So that device looks like this, 12-millimeter discs on each side, a 6-millimeter waist, and an overall 4-millimeter of length. SO WE REDEPLOYED THE DEVICE, AND BY DOING SO, we were ABLE TO GET A MUCH BETTER uh, RESULT. Um, a MUCH BETTER RESULT. NOW IT WORKS. GOOD. SO YOU could SEE THAT THE DEVICE IS HERE, AND then THAT PROXIMAL DISC IS JUST FILLING IN THAT LITTLE, THAT LITTLE, um, YOU KNOW, RIGHT ON THE OUTSIDE OF IT, AND SO HERE'S WHAT IT LOOKS LIKE ON, on CT. IT'S just A MUCH BETTER RESULT. The, THE APPENDAGE IS STILL DARK, SO WE KNOW IT'S DOING ITS JOB. And here's the full cardiac cycle on that. So this is an example of uh, an ADO2, which is an ductal occluder to um, closure of a gutter leading to a peri-device leak. The, um, the, and this is the, this is the TEE of, um, of the better implant, the final implant. And then this is a comparison of the two TEEs where he's telling me this looks bad and he was right and this looks good. So, but it's the first one we ever did. So, you know, you got to learn. So, and I just did that in, I think, October we did this case. And um, so here's the device. And then um, we, we released the device. So we think this is going to be a really good outcome for this patient. Okay. Now, th- this looks a little bit like a uh, Terminator. You remember like the liquid, like the T2, where you was kind of like, could become any kind of liquid uh, metal or whatever this is what a coil looks like when you do a ct on the coil so this is a watchman device that had a pair device leak we went up and inside of it coiled it and we finished it with an ado2 they don't normally look this good this is the best one we have a lot of times there's so much um um beam hardening artifact that you can't see like anything but this one actually was a very good result you could see the little the ado2 finishing this thing so that's that's what coiling looks like, coiling plus ADO2. I'm gonna shift gears a little bit. We're gonna talk about CT fluorofusion. So, if you, what, this system, you could co register a CT with a live fluoro, and d- don't get like motion sick from this. Somebody filmed this with their iPhone but um this was us utilizing that um co-registered ct to deploy uh, at the time this is a pfo occluder device it, it for this left atrial appendage. this is before amulet was commercially available and this is the interprocedural ct demonstrating really a perfect result so um so you you know you can do ct fluorofusion on this system you can then validate it with interprocedural ct um and then um, um, ne- next year, we're going to shift to another one, so another application. So during the pandemic, um, we get hit with, of course, this virus and no ability to test or treat. Um, we know that um, TEE is an aerosolized procedure, and TE cardioversion is the standard of care. These are all truths. Um, so Madi uh, and uh, myself and uh, Edmund Obenchimel, we kind of talked together uh, about doing something to pivot over to a CT cardiversion. So we had it under IRB approval, and we did a protocol with 16 centimeters um, with 40 to 80% um, of the cardiac cycle, and then a delayed 16-centimeter uh, full volume scan at, um, at 80% of the cardiac cycle for the delay to look for thrombus. And then we refined this to 8-centimeter coverage once we got good enough at it, and we cut. We had substantial savings in radiation. We did 80 cc's of iopamidol. Um, followed by ADCCs of contrast. And um, we ended up publishing this. um, There were 165 patients, and really it broke down into uh, 10% thrombus, um, about 70% um, clean on the first pass, and about 20% of patients that had um, a filling defect in the appendage, which cleared on the delayed image. So that's sort of how it turned out. We found no death, stroke, or embolism at a mean fall of 175 days and no change in the GFR. And we were able to get the DLP down to, uh, which is a measure of the amount of radiation, but down to 802, which translates into 11 millisieverts of radiation. Um, so th- we found this to be a safe and uh, feasible alternative to TE in patients um, before cardioversion. Now, some of the interesting things about this are, um, so I'll just go through it like actual case. So you want the Hounsfield units, you're looking at the body of the left atrium, you're looking at the appendage, you want it to be white, and you want the Hounsfield units to be over 100. And if, the, if you get that, then then it's clear. And so here's a case where the, the CT shows that the body of the left atrium is 497, Hounsfield unit is white. Here's the appendage right here. It's 86 out here. So that's either... Um, Depending on the delay, this is either sluggish flow or it's thrombus. And in this case, it was thrombus because on the delay, we were at 138, 162 kind of in the body and the proximal part of the appendage. And we were down in the 60s here. And uh, you you could tweak the the settings, um, the window width and leveling to make it even pop more. But but this is thrombus, and I'll show you. This case is um, this is the uh, TEE with DFINITY proving the, the thrombus and, and inability to penetrate into that distal appendage. Um, so so here's some of the things with the C, with doing CT cardioversion. I mean, obviously, no risk to the esophagus if thrombus is present. You never sedate the patient. You can cut anesthesia out because we do our cardioversions with with moderate sedation, but you can cut anesthesia and TEE out. And then you get your anatomy to do other things like, you know, you could, you could plan your appendage occlusion or do a, or or your ablation. Um, And then in addition, you find things like coronary disease and pulmonary embolus. And, and if you ask any patient, if they want a garden hose put down or they want this, they, they pick this overwhelmingly pick this. And the downside is there is radiation and uh, in stage, you know, for CKD, you, you really can't use it. So so we 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 do uh, I don't know two hundred and ninety-six patients this way and of those there were two hundred seven inpatients and we cut anesthesia out and we cut out um we we cut out you know anesthesia and TEE and by doing that you could see the difference in the cost of, of CT versus TEE. Um, we we also were able to Reduce the length of stay and by doing those two things. We actually saved the system 1.24 million dollars, and this um, these are on that 70 percent of the inpatients. That's the 207 inpatients. So you think about it. Um, wh- when you do an inpatient procedure, you get a DRG. Here's your money. Spend it the way you will. But that so we were able to save the system um, money by by doing this as an alternative. So we didn't really expect that, but that's that's definitely something that we were able to to show. Um, and then I'm going to go into the, this is out of my realm. The, the, these slides were compiled by Stuart Benta. I give him all the credit for this. This is his case. This a 68-year-old male that with an intermittent chest discomfort is a little atypical. He only has a risk of hypertension. There's no other, um, no other, you know, no non-smoke or no pre, uh, family history of coronary disease or anything like that. So a normal paradigm is, you, you know, a patient gets seen, they get referred to cardiology, They get a stress test in some order, right? And then they get um, ultimately a catheterization off of that. And there's variable time from referral to intervention. And these time delays can increase patient anxiety um, and compound loss productivity on the patient side, increase encounters with the healthcare system. But what if you change the paradigm around and you said, okay, we're going to have a patient, you know, like a nurse triage visit. We're going to do a CT first strategy. We're going to do it in the hybrid lab. We're going to get an accurate assessment of the disease of interest, and then a catheterization right there on the table if indicated. And so this is that patient. So this patient had a complex lesion in the LAD. It's tight by CT. And so he just puts the guide up, and you, you got this tight disease. There's a this, this is a second diagonal here. Um, that's about as much as I'm going to do here for the coronary, you know. And then he does a. DK crush technique, Ivis guided, and gets a really nice result out of it. Um, so if you look at the, it's done in this in this suite. But if you look at it, so patient hits the table at time zero. So angiogram 21 minutes later, the pre Ivis, they get stented, they get the you know post Ivis, and an hour and 52 minutes, they're they're done with this part of it, and they're discharged in five hours and 39 minutes. So if you look at this normal paradigm, call it four weeks, we'll just say that it takes four weeks to get the patient initially seen and referred and all this, and you switch that to something that's a 24-hour you know, nurse visit, then they get done. So you start to say, well, wait a second, I, we could do that 27 times faster with this way. And we can, you know, even if this is 72 hours to go from stress testing to cath and intervention, if it's three days on average, you could do it 12 times faster this way in five hours. So... Um, so it's, you know, it's pretty exciting in that sort of integrated diagnostic and therapeutic arena to be able to bring them in and just take care of it all in one shot. So one of, one of the things that I get asked a lot about, and that is, well, are you guys making money in this thing because, you know, it's more expensive? And, and the answer is yes. We're definitely making money. It's $15 million of revenue and growing. Um, the revenue is disproportionately from the interventional procedures. Um, these are the CT volumes Um CT volumes uh, in the um like scanners outside of this room. Uh, and this is what it was before we started. So the, the dark is what the CT volumes were before, and the current CT volumes are the this yellowish whatever color plus this this color here. So we've we've, you know, I don't know, four or five X the amount of CTs that we're doing. And we're still, we're, we're bringing in really good revenue in there. And if you look at the volumes, by volume, there's a lot more CTs done than there are interventional procedures. Um, and so this is kind of the breakdown of what we're doing in the lab, 72% uh, CT, 28% intervention. And imagine, you know, the CTs, you could pop them in there pretty pretty fast. So um, so a couple questions for the, um, now, I don't know, is this the time to do that? I, I don't know, I'm not exactly sure, but so... Did I teach anything and I could do a good job of teaching? I guess is the question here. Paired device leaks increase the risk of stroke, A, only if the leak is greater than five millimeters. B, regardless of size, leaks present at one year mark uh, uh, confer a nearly two fold increased risk of stroke at five years. Only in leaks three to five or small leaks less than three millimeters do not confer an increased risk of stroke. Um, so I don't know. Do you, do you normally do this now or is it after or is that how you do it? I don't know. Okay. Well, so, anybody? Guys, want on
3: up.
2: There are a bunch. Of there. <laughs> B, yeah. B. That's it. And then device-related thrombus is more common than pair-device leaks. I'm, I have, like, these are easy questions. I'm trying to make it like everybody gets 100%. So, device-related thrombus is more common than pair-device leaks. Like, that is that is false. So, um, pair-device leaks are in the order of like 25%, call it, and the DRT is like 3 to 4%. Um, So, in conclusion, the CT intro suite is a novel integrated diagnostic and therapeutic arena. When you have conclusive diagnostic tests coupled with immediate definitively improved therapeutic intervention, you improve quality. This patient-centered care delivery streamlines care cutting weeks off traditional workup, improving service and access. This is, uh, there's a significant cost savings to patients, insurers, and the health system. So in a value-based care model, value goes up when quality, service, and access go up and costs go down. So the CT Android suite actually accomplishes all of those things. Um, So it's a winner in both the fee-for-service world and in a a value-based care uh, world. And then I just want to uh, give some thanks to Stuart Benton, Mahdi Chaudhary, Ron Jacob, and James Harvey, um, interestingly, every one of these is a uh, um, Emory grad. Everyone, James was my um, resident. I think he was an intern, and I was on Logue service. Um, actually, Ron is in, He's a he's a Cleveland Clinic guy. We got to throw him out. But I showed a bunch of people here. But James is Cleveland Clinic. Ron's Cleveland Clinic. Anyway, it's it's funny. It's a small world in cardiology, right? So, but anyway, with that, that completes. Um, that's everything.
0: Do we have any questions from the audience at this time? Feel free to raise your hand so I can see you. I have a question um, concerning uh, CT-guided PCI's. Um, I know you showed a case of a DK crash guided with CT, showed excellent results. My question is if you have a very calcified lesion how do you deal with the blooming effects of the CT? That's
2: a good point. Um, well, there's a couple of thoughts about that. Um, these current generation devices, or the CT scanners, they do struggle with blooming. Um, that's that's uh, partial vol- volume averaging. And if you get a heavily calcified vessel and you can't tell, you're probably going to have to go to to, uh, to do a coronary CTA. However, not so fast. Um, And it's not in this version, but, you know, there are um, photon scanning CTs. I think when the photon scanning CTs um, are able to kind of get into the more mainstream, that's going to go away because those all have a signature amount of like you can subtract the calcium out, like literally take it out so uh, you could see inside of stents. And And there's there's stuff if you look on Twitter, there's all kinds of stuff being put out there right now about that stuff. So. I would say for now you're right. Um, you know, obviously, patient selection, you know if you've got a 25 year diabetic, you're probably not going to want to do that strategy, right but um, but you know in this patient population, they didn't have a lot of risks, and I think but you're right, you you could get you could get tripped up with blooming, partial volume averaging. Hey June.
1: uh, you know, three, three millimeters and less. So are you, uh, are you closing all of those small leaks? So what are you guys doing?
2: It's this? interesting. Cause what I'm doing now at this point is, um, some of them, you know, they, I, I always try to believe that maybe they'll close on me. I've had a one of them where I went back in there and waited, dragged my feet for 13 months and brought them in there and it was closed. And I was like, all right, thank goodness. So you should probably wait. If they're really small, you should probably wait, you know, and see, we are uh, putting most of them on half-dose NOAC. That's a kind of evidence-free zone, but there's some good evidence to show half-dose NOAC. You know, those patients actually do really well, like kind of in the long run. Like there, there's some thoughts that you should put the device in and put them on like two and a half of Eliquis and not stop that forever and just have on that as their sort of destination therapy. They probably do better than anything else if you kind of look at the data that I've seen on that. But we we'll, we'll t- tend to do is we'll we'll convince them to go back on an anticoagulant. And if they're not willing to do that, then then we'll um, we'll um, we'll seal them. And I offer everybody to, to seal, but if it's really small and I think it's gonna seal on its own, I kind of drag
3: my feet. Can I right. um, just on that point, I just want to clarify for everyone, Brian and June, what are, regardless of the leak, what's your practice of dual antiplatelet therapy or anticoagulation, Harry? Peri- uh left atrial appendage occlusion device and for how long
2: yep so what we're doing now um we do a three months of whatever we're doing and then we image with ct because i did the initial data on the first like 50 or so patients i think 75 and we found that only 12 percent of them would endothelialize on a NOAC at 45 days so when you've got contrast coming through the face of the device you need you, you you want to eliminate that as a as a potential way for that thing to be bright in there. So we, we go longer. That's number one. We go three months on the on the scans. The second thing is we'll do. I think our preferred modality right now is no ac um, single like no no antiplatelet like no for three months if they could tolerate it. If not, we do we do DAPT. And in patients that are really high risk, I will do half those eliquis monotherapy, like. But it's usually NOAC, three months, and then we drop right to aspirin after a CT proves that we're in good shape. That's our sort of standard.
3: So what do we do? Jim?
1: Uh, yeah, I mean, we follow kind of standard guidelines. We do, you know, 45 days of NOAC or DOAC with aspirin and then aspirin-plavix for six months. So um, the, and those patients, they're, they're all getting a T at 45 days. So anybody with a significant leak, we would... Potentially continue their anticoagulation and then reimage uh, at some point. So
3: this is it's really good for the general audience that we focus on our regular practice. So on that note, a couple of questions. Number one is, what do we do for patients who you can't anticoagulate at all? Um, that's why they're getting the device, um, like an intracerebral hemorrhage case or something. How do you handle the um, therapy T- there?
2: Tend to, to with that. What I always do is it really depends. Part of it depends on how, how fresh the bleed is. So I get neurosurgery always involved and I get them to say, okay, what can we do? And then they'll give us like, oh, I think you could do like half those Eliquis for this amount of time or whatever. Like I'll do whatever that is. And then we, we get them down to single antiplatelet therapy. Now there are, the amyloid angiopathy ones are really bad. They, they bleed, they don't want them really on anything. Um, so um, we're really hopeful. That the the promise of like Flex Pro, what that is is going to be able to get us all the way down. And I've got like 330 patients that are in our system right now that fit that criteria. They're on nothing. They bled in their head, and they're they're AFib with CHADS VASC you know three or more. And so I was actually thinking about doing like a study and just you know randomly assigning them to. But anyway, so if you want to yeah. work on a on a, but I don't I don't think there's a. I, I think you've got to go to neurosurgery. you got to get clearance, especially if it's fresh. And then um, you try to get them down as fast as you possibly can with, you know, the minimum risk. If you look at it, doing a platelet therapy, the risk of bleeding is the same as warfarin. I mean, it's not low, you know, so uh, I, I think I think. The best, in my mind, would be if you could do maybe single anaploidal therapy or or nothing. And there is a Watchman Flex Pro study that's coming out looking at all these different regimens um, for device-related Because throm- really, you're talking about DRT risk, you know, so.
1: Just a final question, Brian. Um, looking at your device-related thrombus data. So you're... The, the rate of thrombus doesn't appear to be any different with the new flex device versus the old uh, version of the watchman, it looks like. So what are the factors that might contribute to development of the DRT?
2: Um, so uh, things that contribute to DRT, um, there are some patient factors like longstanding persistent AFib is one of them. Um, deep deployment of the device is another factor that, that um, it definitely contributes to to DRT. So there are pa- there are patient factors and then there's like, you know, anatomical things that you do or what we do in the, in the procedure. Um, you know, it, it is interesting because um, sometimes you'll see some kind of like thickening on the CT and then we'll turn around and we'll go get a TEE to, to look at it. And you, you do see some kind of weird things. Like, I don't know. I describe it as like a sea anemone, like little, like fibrotic stuff. It's gross. Like when you see that, you're just like, oh gosh, like I don't, what you know, um, so it, Anyway, there are patient factors, um, and then there are um, there are you know anatomical factors that both contribute. And actually, that like I was telling you that that, that Al Cooley paper is it's beautiful. It's a quick read, and it goes through every single it goes through everything that you could possibly want to know about DRT in like you know five minutes. Thanks, Brian. I had a, a clinical question about um, pre CT uh, use in these procedures. What was your routine follow-up with imaging
0: afterwards? Um, and then, and now, are you so confident with a post-procedure CT that you're not imaging at all? And what do you do
2: down the road when somebody comes back with a TIA? Is, is so your that's a good question. Those are, those are great questions. Before before we had the CT adoption, we were doing TEEs, the standard 45 in one year. And then if somebody had um, a neurologic event, we get another... Uh, CT. I think every time a person comes in with a neurologic vent post um, device, they should be evaluated. And if you, you know, if you've got a good CT program, I I get the CT because I'm looking for pair device leak for, for DRT and the whole bit, but you got to get one of the other one because a a lot of DRTs are found kind of incidentally. They're found on the one year. They're almost all found with a watchman, almost all found when you're on single antiplatelet therapy. Um, even so, the, the Champion AF clinicals trial, they did three months of um, of DOAC and then waited a month and then did the, the imaging a month later just to see if maybe they would develop something on the single antiplatelet therapy. So if somebody has a, a a neurologic event, they should be evaluated. And I don't care when it is. I don't care if it's five years later. Get it because you, you'll find stuff. And, you know, the it's interesting because the flow dynamics – could change dramatically if you had a person that was a more paroxysmal AFib person that became like long-standing persistent um and also cardiac output going down like if their ef goes down or their mitral valve starts getting worse and they get more mitral stenosis those are other factors like if the overall state of flow in the appendage or in the left atrium is bad they're going to be at much higher risk for for drt
3: um See, I'm just wondering if, if uh, David, if you, David Maloney, if you have any questions related to some of the work you guys are doing. But while while you contemplate that, um, talk to us about what happens, you know, this case you presented for that Stuart Benton did, right? The the cath case. Patient comes in. How, what about room utilization? So how much of the time is the CT and does that reduce the number of interventional or EP procedures you do, and how does that factor into the overall cost equation?
2: I think, you know, in that case, that was one of the days where um, there was, like, it wasn't, the CTs were stacked one after another after another, and you're exactly right. I think the ideal construct of the room, now that we've had it for some period of time, would be. A situation where you have the ct scanner there's a divided wall and you could like pick this wall up and then move it in and do what you got to do and then move it out and keep keep going and some of the other vendors are actually looking at that sort of strategy so i agree with you um you know take an hour and a half out of the middle of the day and push all these patients behind and stuff but that was a day where um the lab was open and available and we just swung them down there did it and then executed on that um,
3: so I but, think it's a it's very you're right though it's okay, a, but other than that, I mean, just give us an idea because I see like you know Matt's there from the lab and others um, h- How do you decide who goes into that room? How do you stratify that? Is it all your appendage cases that go in or? I'm just trying to think aloud, like if you're setting up a program, how do you justify it? What days of the week? What about the yep. days you're not doing appendage closure? Is it just sitting around? So, so it's a great space to,
2: like you will never not have something to put in the room. That's the first thing. So if you put it in there and you don't have a doc lined up to do interventional case, you will have, the, the room will be utilized. Uh, it'll be utilized with CTs. It happens to be our best CT scanner for coronaries. So we do coronaries in that room on a dedicated day of the week. We do left, right, heart cath, uh, tower workups in that room. Um, So we have certain days that are sort of dedicated for it. Now we are getting an outpatient scanner and we're gonna pull out some of the volume out of there. I mean, you always have to think what's the best utilization of that space for what we're doing. And right now, because of the value added, the appendage are the cases like I don't want to do them in any other environment because it's, you know, it's so important to get it right. And it gives me so much so, so much good data. And we're doing five cases a day now in that room. So start at seven, finish this three thirty or four. So, um, yeah, I think what will end up happening is the, core, the, the CTs for appendage evaluation. Because it's a volume scanner, it's unique in that you can do eight centimeters of coverage, full cardiac cycle and a single beat. I think the volume scanner is even better than um, like some of the other products, the dual source products, because they don't have the same Z axis. Mm-hmm. So, so for me, what I think is going to end up with that room is it's going to be the appendage stuff, uh, intra and post. And it's going to be certain things like that, like, cause we're getting a, we're getting a dual source scanner. We're getting a, we're getting a photon scanner and now patient arena. So Siemens. like, yeah, Siemens. So it's yeah. going to be, we're probably going to shift
3: all the corners out that way. You, you know, like we're yeah. going to kind of shuffle so the deck gonna... a little bit. Um, David, I don't know if you've got, it Just, I thought it'd be important to just talk a little bit about some of the work that you're all doing or any questions. Yeah, I was just, <clears throat> I was just going to ask, Brian, um, in terms of the pre-procedural imaging, um, do you do 3D reconstruction of your appendage from the CT? And if you do that, do you garner any extra information besides, you know, the other measurements like depth, area, and diameter that you're doing? Um, well, there's a, a couple
2: of these different packages that give you almost like a glass view where you can like walk inside of it. And those ones we find pretty, pretty helpful. Um, you know, like, for example, TruePlan has one where you can kind of get inside of the appendage and see the different things that are sort of taking place. But I don't generally speaking grab that that 3D volume and, and mess around with it just because I think at this point I can like put it together in my head on multi But I do a thorough evaluation on multi reconstruction. Um, but I think if there were better tools that were just readily accessible and I could kind of get inside of it and do, uh, Stewart's always playing around with the holograms like he wants to like look in, you know, but so I think it's valuable. Um, I just think that the package that we use, which is usually the Philips IntelliSpace, it's just not, it's not set up as well to do
3: to do that. Well, I think um, I think we need to close it. Absolutely fantastic talk. Let's give Dr. Schuler another round. <laughs>